Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Ollie has said, we're, we're, we're looking at why Christmas today. We're going to answer that question. Um, for some of you, that would be a very comfortable question uh, to, to be considering today. My word of the week, uh, my new word of the week is Bridgemas, which is the traditional Cambridge celebration of Christmas a month early. We've just missed it. It's the 25th of November. So happy Bridgemas, everybody. Um, some of you might feel a bit uncomfortable by that. This was the Sunday formerly known as the first Sunday of Advent, um, where you're not really supposed to wish anybody happy Christmas for another four weeks. It's considered very bad form in the Church of England to, to leap ahead into the next season of the church year. But being a committed Anglican, I think we can happily do both. We don't have to choose between Bridgemas or the first Sunday of Advent. We can, in fact, celebrate today, um, and yet also keep an eye out to the fact that Christmas is coming, um, and we can use this day as a chance to start thinking um, and start praying and looking forward to what we will be celebrating in a month's time. So as we ask this question, why Christmas, and we explore this passage from Hebrews to give us our answer, let's just pray as we begin. Lord God, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you especially for sending your son who came like us uh, to, to be born, to live, to die, and to set us free. And we pray, Lord, that this morning we would not just learn about this freedom, but Lord, you would help us step into it, that we would become free in your son. In his name we pray. Amen. So, our reading from Hebrews today connects two things that feature quite prominently in the stories of the birth of Jesus. There are two names that Matthew's gospel gives to Jesus. Uh, one is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the other is a little explanation about the name Jesus itself, which is the Greek form of the word of the name Joshua, which means God saves. So right at the heart of uh, the celebration of Jesus' birth, which we're remembering today, are these two things, the idea that God comes to be with us, fully present with us in this little baby, Jesus. Uh, and this baby comes to save us. And the writer to the Hebrews takes those two ideas and combines them in the reading that we've just had. And the answer as to why uh, God comes to be with us, and why he saves us is to set us free. Um, and so it's that freedom that we're going to be looking at in particular this morning. But before we look at the freedom itself, we, we want to ask ourselves, well, what, what do we need to be free from? Why would we even need to be freed? And once we've answered that question, we need to think about, well, why would a baby help us be free like that? Why would God go to the effort of coming in the form of a baby? What has that to do with this freedom that God is working for us? So we're going to look at those two things first, and then at, um, in conclusion, we'll be looking at what it might mean for us to step into that freedom and to start to live in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. So first of all, let's think about what we might need to be freed from. Now, according to the reading we've had from Hebrews, we are people of flesh and blood, and therefore we are held in slavery by our fear of death. And it's this particular fear and its consequences that God frees us from. Now, it's a pretty big claim to say that we are held in slavery by our fear of death. 
Um, so it's worth unpacking a little bit what the writer to the Hebrews might mean by that. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to walk around moment by moment with a uh, deep awareness of my own mortality, uh, although I do cycle in Cambridge occasionally. Um, and so there are moments where that comes to the fore. And I've found, and some of you have this to look forward to, uh, that birthdays also, as they accumulate, uh, start to raise that prospect. Uh, more seriously, uh, illness, uh, whether our own, those we love, um, just simply growing older, and maybe through experiencing the pain and sorrow that we have when our friends or our loved ones are ill or threatened with death or even die. Those things, too, impact our lives and can, either from time to time or even quite persistently, create a fear of mortality and a fear of our death. So while the conscious fear of death might not permeate every moment for each of us, I think we need to admit that that fear is present for us in life, and it's certainly a significant part of what the writer to the Hebrews is addressing and what they mean when they write the fear of death which holds us enslaved. <clears throat> but I think there is a deeper meaning to the fear of death that the writer has in mind because it represents, death represents a fear of judgment of God on our lives. And God's judgment is fearful to us because God is right and good and holy and we are not. And so the prospect of finishing our lives and having the sum total of our life brought before this right and holy and good and perfect God is something that causes fear. And so it's this reality that's captured in the phrase held in slavery by the fear of death. Both the end of our creaturely life and the inevitable judgment of God upon that life, that whole totality, that's what Hebrews means when um, it speaks about being held in slavery by the fear of death. But what does this actually look like? Talk of slavery to the fear of death, it's very easy to, to sort of bounce that into a pretty abstract theoretical um, idea. And, and because we live somewhere like Cambridge, um, we, we have a tendency as a town to push things towards the abstract. Um, and so pulling that back a bit and trying to figure out what are the concrete realities of this fear, um, I think that's worth exploring. And we can explore that in at least three ways. How does this fear actually cash out in our lives? And first of all, I'd suggest that this fear influences what we say and what we don't say. I don't know if you've ever felt nervous before speaking. Uh, maybe you've got a big presentation to deliver. Uh, maybe uh, something challenging to say to a friend. Maybe a, a work conversation that's going to be difficult. I've got a friend in the army who talks about those things as a conversation without coffee. Uh, maybe you have a conversation without coffee that's looming on the horizon that might worry you. Maybe you've changed something that you've said to fit in with a group. Have you ever found yourself slipping into um, a demeaning or a nasty conversation just to side with the people you're in? Uh, maybe some of the things that you hear coming out of your mouth uh, are less than helpful, less than encouraging. Maybe they reveal all sorts of attitudes and issues that you might have deep inside. 
Um, all of those things. Or maybe the things that you should have said, but that you didn't. Um, have you ever witnessed anything that wasn't right and chose to keep quiet about it? Have you ever avoided conflict uh, when you knew that difficult things needed to be said? Have you ever wondered where your silence came from? What stopped you from speaking out? Might it be fear? Fear of the consequences of what we say? Fear of what other people will think? Fear of getting it wrong? The next dimension I think fear impacts our lives is in what we do, our actions. I don't know if you've ever been nervous before doing something or attempting something. Maybe you've got a different pro difficult project at work that needs to be completed. Maybe a very challenging colleague to collaborate with. Maybe if you're in medicine, you have a delicate surgical procedure that needs to be performed that's going to take all of your resources and the resources of the team. Maybe that provokes a bit of nervousness in you. Maybe you're a student and you've got a dissertation to write, an exam to sit, um, a supervision to have. Or maybe there's something that you know you ought to be doing, but you just choose not to do it. Um, you can't bring yourself to do it. Maybe an employee or an employer who needs to be confronted about their behavior. Maybe an action you need to take to bring transparency or honesty or openness to your work environment, to the way you report, to your financial work. Maybe there's a task that you've committed to, but you just can't bring yourself to start it. It's much easier to procrastinate than it is to actually roll up your sleeves and get on with it. Maybe you have a responsibility to a family member or a friend that is going to be challenging, and so you just ignore it and ignore them. Now, I don't really want to tell you how I would answer all of those questions, and I'm certainly not going to ask you to answer them out loud. But I can tell you this, that uh, fear, for me, uh, would play a significant part in how I would respond to all of those rhetorical questions that I've just thrown out there. And it's worth saying that these, the way I phrase that is about our individual choices, um, things that we might say, things that we might do. Uh, but actually, these things are not just individual, because this fear uh, permeates our relationships, our societies, our organizations, and our world. And you only need to look at the recent news to see that some pretty major organizations, uh, including the police, the fire service, the health service, the government, the education system, not to mention individual companies, all of these institutions have issues brought about through what people say and what people do, and what people don't say and what people don't do. And so that, that fear, that worry, that nervousness, um, that inability to act and speak rightly because of our fear, that permeates everything we do. But the fear of death that enslaves us goes deeper than just our outward words and actions. It, it shapes how we think about ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. It shapes who we believe we are. So we can find ourselves wondering, what must we be like deep down if we act and behave like this? If we speak these things or if we don't speak, if we do these actions or we don't do them, what must we be like underneath all of that to live a life that shapes like this? 
What would our lives be like if the truth about our actions and our words got out? What would become of us? We can barely meet our own standards of behavior, much less the standards of others, or dare we think it, the standards of the God who made us. And you might, this may have happened to you, um, but you can certainly, I'm sure, think of people in the public eye at the moment um, whose private words and actions have been spilled out into the public. And there was an extraordinary statement from one of those people recently, um, actually a, a call for forgiveness, someone who's looking for forgiveness. What an extraordinary thing to say in public for someone reflecting on some of their behavior, their actions, and their words. And, and these fears, they're, again, they're not just abstract. In our speech, in our actions, in our very the depths of who we are, these fears come out physically. They come out in the dry mouth before you speak, the sweaty hands before you act, the slightly raised heart rate um, as the car cuts you off on the roundabout when you're on the bike. We cannot escape the fact that this reality that Hebrews talks about impacts every corner of our lives. Everything we do, everything we feel, everything we say, everything we think. We are, it's not just that we have a body, we are bodies. And so all of these things come home to roost in this physical stuff that God has made us to be. And this is our predicament according to Hebrews and indeed the rest of the Bible. This is what it means for us to live under the fear and power of death. At its heart, it is an insight that there is something that has gone terribly wrong with who we are and how we relate to each other. And those of us who have been here for the last few weeks going through the series on Genesis will have an idea as to where some of that comes from and the origins of that problem, which the Bible names sin. Um, so you might want to look up uh, some of those talks on the website if you want to refresh yourself as to the origins of our state. But it is this predicament that God has chosen to free us from through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the why Christmas that we're thinking about today, is the first crucial step towards that freedom that God is willing for us. So we're going to think a little bit now about how the birth of Jesus leads to this freedom. Why would this be a necessary step on the way to the freedom that God has for us? And we've heard from Hebrews, uh, which spells out the way in which God sets us free through the life of Jesus, when the writer says, Christ too shared in their humanity, that's our humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So for a moment, I just want to think a little bit more, de more deeply about what it means for Jesus to share our humanity. Now, none of this is particularly um, difficult. These are all quite obvious things, but I think it's certainly worth reminding myself about them, and maybe it's worth reminding you too. So just to say that Jesus really is fully human. Um, he is born as a baby. Immediately after his birth, he took his first breath. He needed oxygen to begin his life. He probably cried. Uh, he was hungry. He probably cried again. Many, many, many times. Uh, and Mary would have fed him. And Jesus drank. 
When he was full and happy, he would have slept and he would have been quiet for a bit until the crying starts again because that's what babies do. In the words of Hebrews, he shared our humanity. But not just as a baby, because the baby grows up to be an adult, and as an adult, Jesus still shares our humanity. Like us, he learns how to talk. He has the same experience of conversation and speech as we do. He's tempted to say things that aren't true. He's tempted to blame others when things go wrong. He's tempted to stay silent when he should be speaking out, and he's tempted to defend himself when he needs to keep quiet. Jesus learns to act like us. He makes choices about what to do. He moves around. He makes friends. He prepares food. He touches people. He goes out for dinner. He has exactly the same experience of life as we do. He's tempted to do things that are not honoring to God. He's tempted to think about himself and ignore the needs of others. He's tempted to hang back and do nothing when he should be acting, and he's tempted to rush in and fix things when he should be holding back. He learns to understand himself in relation to God, just like us. How does he relate to God? What does God think of him? How does he engage in that relationship with God? And like us, this this is the vital question, how he relates to God. This is the vital question at the heart of all he says and all he does. So Jesus experiences all the realities of life in which we feel fear in speaking, in acting, and in his deepest identity. And as the Gospels show, while we don't get many insights into Jesus' internal thoughts, we do get to see, and this is particularly in Gethsemane, how even Jesus experiences the fear of death and how this fear manifests itself physically in his body, in his emotional distress and in the blood that he sweats before his father in the garden. It's, you cannot separate, even in Jesus, you cannot separate the fear from the bodily reality of what it means to be human. He was human just like us. So he shared our humanity. He became like us in every respect. And we see this in the events surrounding his crucifixion. He's still human right up to his death. He speaks, he's thirsty, he's tired. He experiences the pain of being nailed to the cross. He utters his last words, he performs his last acts, he takes his last breath, and he dies. He became like us from his birth to his death. From Christmas morning all the way to Good Friday, he lives and dies as a human being. But, but, for the first time in human history, we are told in Hebrews, in Jesus Christ, the power of death encounters a human being that it cannot enslave. And so Jesus lives a life that is completely free from the fear of death and the slavery it brings. He has to confront that fear, but it doesn't control him. It doesn't dictate his actions. It doesn't shape what he says. It doesn't ultimately control how he thinks about himself or how he relates to God, his Father. Instead, Jesus lives a life of complete trust and reliance on God. And in this deeply loving relationship, one that's so close and so intimate that Jesus can talk about God as my Father, it's that close. There is no crack 
in that relationship where the fear of death has room to sneak in and grab a hold. That relationship is so trusting, so loving, that there is no fear in it. There is only love. There is only obedience. There is only trust. So it's not just in death that Jesus overcomes the fear of death. It's seen in his whole life. He has never been enslaved by this terror of dying, this fear of judgment that enslaves everyone else who has ever lived. And so when it comes to Jesus' physical death, his crucifixion is not the last word for this one person. Death doesn't bring an end to Jesus' living, to his breathing, to his speaking, to his acting. Instead, the power of death is in fact broken by Jesus' life and Jesus' death. For the saving presence and power of God we find in Jesus is stronger than death. So strong, in fact, that it atones for the sins of the whole world. And so Jesus lives and continues to live, sharing our humanity, breathing, speaking, and acting for us. And this is unbelievably good news for us. Unbelievably good news. And the good news is summed up in the very last phrase of our reading. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you can also translate tempted as tested. So Jesus is able to help those who in their lives are tested and tempted by this fear of death. Because he himself lived like us and overcame that very fear. So just to finish, I want to think a little bit about what this freedom looks like. Um, it's almost impossible to imagine because our lives are so soaked with fear. Um, every time we go to speak, every time we go to act, every time we're left alone to think of ourselves, I suspect that there's a fear that's crouching there that if we let it, is going to influence what we do, what we say, and what we believe. So to step out of that fear is, is a big move for us. And it's a move that we cannot make on our own. Simply gritting our teeth and willing not to live a life of fear is not actually the solution. That's not going to do it. But there is one primary way that Jesus helps us um, when we are tempted. It's not mentioned in the passage, but it is implied in everything I've said about Jesus' humanity. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. As if you think back to the Gospels, um, the presence of the Spirit has been active and powerful in every moment of Jesus' life, um, in his conception, at his birth, especially at places like his baptism and in things like the transfiguration. And if you think of Jesus' baptism just for a moment and, and that image of the descent of the Spirit and then the voice from heaven, this is my Son, the Beloved, Listen to him. The source of Jesus' identity is the love that he receives through the Spirit from the Father. The source of Jesus' words is the love that he receives through the Spirit from the Father. The source of Jesus' actions is the love he receives through the Spirit from the Father. And the source of that love is not just given to Jesus. It is poured out 
from Jesus to us. That same spirit who descends on the Son at the baptism is given to the disciples of Jesus, to the followers of Jesus. And the reality of that spirit and the the all-encompassing transformation that that presence and power and love of God can make for Jesus, that change is available to us. And so it is in the spirit that we can begin to live the kind of life that Jesus lives that is free from this all-pervasive fear of death, which threatens everything about us. And as the Spirit descended on the person of Jesus, on his, on his physical body, so too we believe that the Spirit is given to and can be present with us. And the Spirit is none other than Jesus himself. I was going to say um, at the end here that you, you might want to imagine Jesus sort of next to you speaking and breathing the Spirit and to encourage you. But actually imagines the wrong word. You don't need to imagine it. It's not something that's fake, that doesn't exist. It's, it's actually what's happening. <laughs> um, it's, it's real. It's the truest reality. The baby who was born, who grew and lived in the power of the Spirit, who died and was raised as a human being, has lifted to the right hand of the Father and, as the passage tells us, is a faithful high priest, has been raised like us, there is someone just like us who shares our humanity in the very presence of God, living and breathing and interceding for us. So to receive from him is not an imaginative trick. It's not pretending something to be true that isn't. It's accepting what is already true and learning to receive the presence and the power and the love of Christ through the Spirit for each one of us in every single moment every action, every dimension of our lives today. And that is really good news. That is how we are set free. That is why we have Christmas. Amen.